We believe that every person on the planet deserves to live their healthiest and best life. A qualified nutrition coach and personal trainer can be the key to living that life. At Macros Inc., we provide fully customized one-on-one nutrition coaching and online personal training that has changed the lives of 10,000 people and counting. We offer a two-week free trial for our nutrition coaching, and you can get started risk-free today. Just go to macrosinc.net slash services and sign up. Let's get into the show. On today's episode of the show, we bring back a special guest, Dr. Mike Stair. On this episode, we talk a lot about posterior chain exercise and how you can use that to help address back pain. We talk about whether you can prevent back pain or whether you can just treat back pain through exercise. Hope you guys enjoy the show and that you can take a lot from this and put it into practice in your daily life. All right, welcome back. This is our second official episode that we're going to be releasing with our very famous guest, or maybe he's infamous. We're not quite sure. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Michael Stair. Do you usually go by Mike or Michael? I usually go by Mike unless I am in trouble or uh, around <laughs> uh, my, my family back home in Chicago. But uh, yeah, everyone else yep. is Mike. Yep. Only my wife calls me Bradley, and it's usually when I've done something stupid. So <laughs> I know how that goes. Yep. Well, uh, Mike is a fellowship-trained uh, orthopedic physical therapist, and he owns a, a fitness consulting company on the East Coast. So he's got a couple physical therapy clinics, a couple um, personal training clinics, and owns the entire Eastern Seaboard. So that is <laughs> it's part of my empire. Yeah, exactly. So cool. So Mike, uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about posterior chain exercise. Um, and how that relates to chronic back pain. And so I kind of want to just start this discussion a little bit of, you know, what is posterior chain exercise? And is it something that the average person should think about? Yeah, so uh, posterior chain um, exercise essentially refers to the muscles on the backside of your body. So in the spine, it's the muscles that are called the paravertebrals. Um, also, uh, behind the shoulder and the shoulder blades, the muscles that retract or pull back your shoulders, um, going all the way down the spine again in the lumbar spine, extensors of the spine is what they're called or paravertebrals. Uh, but that also involves hip muscles. Uh, the glutes are a big part of that, uh, posterior chain, no pun intended and the uh, hamstrings. So, um, some would argue even that you could consider the calves, you know, through the Achilles complex as part of that as well. So is it basically everything on the backside? Yeah, I, I think that's the easiest way to, uh, uh, to, to visualize exactly what muscles we're talking about. And to your second question, is it something that we should be concerned about whether or not you have back pain? Um, yes, for two reasons. One, uh, there's a decent amount of evidence showing that poor endurance of those, uh, especially the back extensors, uh, does correlate with a higher risk of some types of back pain. And two, interventional studies for those who already have back pain um, have shown that they're at least effective and maybe more effective than other types of treatments uh, for certain types of back pain. So I guess my, my next question is, what is the reason for that? 
Well, you know, I, I think asking, you know, somebody in biomechanics, they could come up with some pretty elaborate uh, descriptions. Um, I have learned as somebody who's studying biomechanics that uh, the human body uh, doesn't fall very well to models that are similar to engineering. Um, it does describe, I think, at least some plausible mechanisms. But I've also learned that it, there's too many instances where if we theorize, well, it prevents shear or it keeps your spine from bending too far forward. There's enough instances where that's not the case. So the truest answer I can give you is we don't know. We're not exactly sure. Um, we could talk about how the spine may have a higher degree of failure or damage um, when it's loaded in flexed or bent positions. Um, there's some controversy to what extent that happens. Um, so we don't have clear definitive proof. Um, what I can, though, say is that there's enough evidence from interventional studies where we just see these are deficits in these areas and these people tend to have a higher degree of back issues or um, these people have pain and we treat by emphasizing these muscle groups and they feel better. So um, it might be a little disappointing, especially to my younger self, where I thought we could easily explain everything by force curves and, and vectors. Uh, but um, we just can't honestly say that there's a, a very strong re rationale or reason as to why. Um, now, since you said we don't know, I'm, I'm going to throw out uh, my hypothesis of maybe one reason, and you can tell me how incorrect it probably is, is uh, so I think about like whenever I've played sports, like let's just say basketball, because that's something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with is whenever I'm in very good, like good shape and I have good muscle endurance. I find I have a lot less like joint pain. Um, and one of my thoughts is, is it due to maybe the fact that as our muscles fatigue and we're engaging in activity, our body starts to compensate by using our soft tissue a lot more to generate force, right? Like we're going to rely more on our tendons, more on our fascial tissue, those like to transmit force instead of muscle tissue as it, you know, fatigues. Is that could that be one mechanism by which like having low muscle endurance in your posterior chain contributes to potential back pain as you start to use more of the connective tissue to transmit force? Yeah, we, we have a, a lot of good um, basic understanding, especially in the realm of human performance, that that is exactly what's happening. We do see a higher incidence of people having back issues in sport in the later uh, uh, aspects of competition. So the second half of a game or after fatigue, uh, we do see models in which we look at spine position under load. And when there's an element of fatigue, that quote unquote optimal positioning to tolerate or distribute load uh, gets uh, sacrificed. So I think that's probably the best um, justification and explanation what's going on. Your, your muscles are incredibly capable of producing force and of absorbing force as one of their many functions. Um, the spine, uh, especially if we isolate to the lumbar spine, it doesn't have very good uh, under mechanisms that we can measure its load tolerance or its movement tolerance. For example, some models have predicted that the fibers that make up the annulus, which is the um, outer elements of the disc, um, start to fail after only 4% elongation. So when they stretch past 4% of their 
stretch capacity, uh, that's when they start tearing. That occurs at only three degrees of rotation. We have five levels of the lumbar spine. So we got about 15 degrees before theoretically that failure is going to occur. Um, your muscles in your abdominal region in particular, the abdominal muscle region, they're woven like a basket. Mm-hmm. You know, they have muscles that go up and down, muscles that crisscross the obliques that go diagonally in different directions, and then muscles go transversely to transverses. So that gives us a, um, a good basis to suggest that the, the architecture of the, of the spine is to try to stabilize so that the big muscles the latissimus and the you know pectorals and the glutes, the hips, the shoulders are supposed to be producing force and producing power, I should say. And the way to transmit power from your leg to your arm is by making sure it doesn't leak or uh, be absorbed mostly at the spine. So the abdominal muscles having good endurance is to help transmit the movement at the hip and at the shoulder. Um, and theoretically, if we lost that capacity, there's going to be, as you just suggested, more torque, more shear uh, that's absorbed not by the muscles, but by the joints, the ligaments, the disc that we know have a relatively poor capacity for absorbing and tolerating load. Um, so that is a prevailing theory that um, has been um, fairly well substantiated, although not 100% of the time. Um, and that, that is definitely argued more strongly in performance because we do see uh, that more easily measured as performance versus injury. So obviously your posterior chain is a bunch of different muscles. Um, and I guess a couple questions. One is how, how important is it to focus on that versus just general exercise for chronic back pain? Um, and then I guess the second question to that would be, what specific muscle groups or exercises appear to be more beneficial? Because I would imagine, um, you know, like your, your posterior chain of maybe your scapular retractors, right? Those probably yes. aren't going to give you as much therapeutic benefit for your lumbar spine, maybe, I don't know, um, as it would be like, you know, working on hamstring or glutes or like things like that. Yeah, that's that's a um, a great question that is uh, plaguing, I think, a lot of research design um, is those are the questions that we want answered. And the research design that is uh, that has been done up to this point isn't perfectly clear. But one thing I do want to emphasize when we're trying to make that distinction, and that's a perfect question to ask, what are the posterior chain muscles? What are the exercises, I should say, that work the posterior chain muscles? And how much more effective is that compared to just general exercise? Just get out and walk, you know, use the stair mill, do some just general workout exercise, some resistance training. There was actually a meta-analysis that was just completed uh, this month, our last month. Um, it was uh, Tataran and colleagues. And they unfortunately only looked back to 2019. Uh, but they still were able to get about a comparative analysis, about 408 subjects and across, I think, 11 or eight different articles. I can't remember. But the point being is that when they compared, they looked at all the exercises that looked at mostly posterior chain exercises. So that means deadlifts, rows, um, bird dogs, um, hip extension, um, spine extension exercises. And then they looked at other type of exercise. So anything else that wasn't predominantly the aforementioned exercises. Both groups did better 
for people that had chronic back pain. But um, there was a significant improvement in those who focused on posterior chain exercise. So the first point to emphasize is that exercise does better than other type of treatments. It's still effective regardless of what type you choose. Um, but there was a significant difference between people doing the posterior chain exercise I mentioned. So that's a pretty cool thing. But the other really neat thing gleaned from that, and then a prior study looked at the same type of thing or similar thing, there was no greater adverse effects. The people that were doing the posterior chain exercises, deadlifts, um, hip extensions, uh, bird dogs, compared to flexion-based exercise or general exercise, um, there, there wasn't a substantial risk. There, there, one group didn't have more or less of a risk than the other. The assumption has been that, well, if we have a choice to do deadlifts and rows versus walking and some stretching, the walking or stretching would be less risky. So if they're not significantly different in effect, let's just, you know, advise them to walk and do that. But that wasn't bear, borne out in those studies. There was no greater risk by deciding to do the posterior chain exercises compared to the general exercise. And that is also true for some prior studies that looked at competitive powerlifters and weightlifters. Yes, their highest frequency of injury were back issues, but it was at no higher frequency than the general population. So I want to emphasize those two points because while, yes, there seems to be evidence that posterior chain exercise is better, doing any exercise is going to be better than not. And there's no greater risk of doing these posterior chain exercises. That's that brings up a lot of interesting questions <laughs> um, and, and maybe not in in any particular order. So you mentioned something that was very interesting there. Um, obviously, I think the take home was any exercise is better than no exercise. Specific posterior chain exercises are slightly better than general exercise. Um, for addressing chronic back pain. The, one of the more interesting things you said was the frequency of back injuries amongst people who are engaging in what we would consider a high risk behavior for back injuries is actually no higher than the general population. Um, can we, let's break that down a little bit. Um, I guess one, why would the, why would that be? Um, and two, are the, types of injuries different, right? Like are the people who are engaging in the powerlifting, are they more acute high energy injuries to low back that are more severe or are they pretty similar across all populations? Yeah. The, um, well, there's inherently a difficulty in classifying back injuries. Yeah. So I don't know if we would be, even if the, the terminology is even an issue, you know, when you can talk about herniation or bulge, or you talk about, uh, lumbago, <laughs> which is pretty much means back pain. I was going to um, say, that sounds like a drink that you'd have when you were in Aruba. <laughs> or, or, or a forbidden dance or something, right? Yeah. You know? um, so it, it's, that is inherently a problem. So I don't know if we have any good data that will tell us that there's different types of injuries sustained. But we also have issues of, you know, I guess a little bit of a version of selection bias. You know, the people who are doing these uh, powerlifting, weightlifting are, are a unique population. Um, maybe they self-selected because they have better tolerance for that. Uh, on the flip side, they're exposing themselves to loads far, far greater than the general population. So I think that's almost a wash. Um, 
you know, maybe they, um, although they're experiencing way, way higher loads, they're more coordinated and they have far more strength. So I think when you consider the, well, they would be at a higher risk versus, um, you know, the general population, they also might have higher abilities or capacities. Um, so it's, um, it's very difficult to make any firm conclusions about why that is. Okay. Um, and so then, yeah, I guess the, the second question would be how much of posterior chain exercise is like therapeutic for recovery versus is preventative for preventing chronic back pain? Um, cause I think one of the, one of the things that we hear a lot is, Hey, people should do, you know, two to one pull to push ratios, or they should really focus on their posterior chain to prevent chronic back pain. What do we know about preventative measures versus therapeutics? Right. Cause I think like from, uh, my, my background where like therapeutic development, drugs, medical treatment, et cetera, is there's and disease progression. There's a much, there's a very big difference between, uh, like prevention and treatment, right? The things that you do to prevent disease and the things you do to treat disease are, are very different. Um, so I'm just kind of curious on posterior chain exercises and prevention versus kind of therapy, recovery, treatment. I think we have more evidence to say that it's more um, therapy in terms of recovery than we do in preventative. Um, it's a multifactorial problem. It's the buzzword of just about any injury issues, multifactorial. Um, having the ability to isolate, it's like, you know, your article that you started to write on obesity, you know, it would be foolish with even a cursory understanding of obesity to point to one factor. Um, that being said, solving obesity in terms of weight loss, um, interventionally, there's, you know, relatively a smaller choice of things to do. Um, I guess the analogy is somewhat similar with back issues. Um, we have more evidence showing that certain types of exercise uh, will help the recovery of uh, improved symptoms and improved function. Um, we have more evidence proving that than we do have evidence proving what type of intervention will prevent the onset of back issues. So if we were to say, um, what is, how is exercise most effective as a means of preventing or as a means of treating I would say we have better evidence to show that it's more effective for treating than we do for preventing. Um, and in your expert opinion, do you think that's because it's so difficult to quantify the the risk or do you think there is there just the, the actual ability of it to be preventative is just not there? Cause it's, you know yeah. what I mean? Like there's, yeah. you know, we, we can't quantify because it it's difficult to measure versus I think it's probably, it's just from like a mechanics standpoint or like a cause and effect standpoint, it, there's actually less to say it's preventative. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, and, and that's why one is more difficult than the other. But the way I kind of look at this, when you have an injury, it's not only now what caused the injury, it's the sequelae of things that are going to happen if you don't intervene. And those sequelae are quelched to a great extent by having the proper intervention. 
So we know fatty uh, infiltrate into muscle extensor tissues of the spine and even the glutes um, is a characteristic finding of a chronic low back pain. So the intervention of doing those posterior chain exercises minimizes that effect. We know there is motor control loss, the ability to discreetly sense and position uh, or sense and and, uh, modulate position of the spine is impaired or lost, even when symptoms resolve for people to have low back issues. Um, We know that there is um, preferential movement patterns of disuse of the extensor muscles, even after recovered from an episode of pain of the back. We know that the reoccurrence of back pain is very, very high. So that's where I think we have much more rationale to say, if you've had a back problem, you need to specifically do this stuff. Versus if you're 25 and you're trying to say, I'm going to specifically do this program and this will specifically reduce my risk. I think the ability to say that is less. I think you could be much more eclectic in your approach of how you're going to prevent back issues. And in my clinical experience, I think it's more about what you do outside of the gym than what you do inside the gym. That's going to prevent your, your onset of back issues. You're likely to getting a background. Conversely, if you've had a back problem, there's a lot more you can do in the gym to, uh, to hasten the resolution and prevent a reoccurrence. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting because I think, I, at least in my experience, I would say that's very true. Um, like I think about the, the several times that I've like, had a, a back spasm or something like that, like some sort of low back problem is none of them have been like something I've been doing in the gym that like caused it, right? Like I wasn't pulling a heavy deadlift or it was, I think the first one was I was, I was just like running and it just like something gave out. Another one I had just gotten out of a long road trip and like picked up a suitcase and, you know, all those sorts of things that kind of expose you to the risk, but then all of the recovery work really was done in the gym. Um, so that, that's very interesting that that's kind of the perspective that you guys have pulled together as, um, kind of the field of of physical therapy. So in terms of, you know, people, when they think about posterior chain exercises, what are some of the ones that you focus on in your clinic with people when they are recovering from a back issue? Well, that's going to depend, of course, on a lot of different variables. You know, when we look at chronic low back pain, our approach is going to be different than people who have a stenotic behaviors, people that have posterior disc herniations that refer pain down in their leg or radiculopathy. But focusing this so we can be more clear and, and generalizable, for people that have the chronic low back pain, and it's fairly acutely irritated, meaning that most day-to-day things are you know, making their bed, putting their shoes on, or enough to trigger or aggravate their back. One of the first things in the posterior chain category I focus on is uh, the bird dog, hip and knees. Uh, our hands and knees. When you're on the hands and knees in the all fours position, um, it is a very low load exercise. Load in terms of the amount of strain it puts on the disc, the ligaments, the joints, and even the muscular strain. It's not a high challenge to the extensors. Uh, that gives me the ability to modulate the dose very, very discreetly. Uh, so I can turn it up for a more advanced person that has better tolerance or reduce it for somebody who has low tolerance. Um, the other benefit of that is that it's, it's good at teaching position awareness. 
Um, half the battle, I use the analogy all the time of a martial artist throwing a punch. Um, if I were to throw a punch with my wrist like this to a punching bag, it wouldn't work out well. Conversely, here wouldn't work out well either, but here much better. Why? Because the joint is positioned so that it can optimally distribute and absorb load. So I use that same analogy when they're in a quadruped. They can explore whether they feel more or less sensitive at flexion or extension under a relatively low load position and then maintain that position while they go to lift one leg or one arm. Um, so that would be a good place to start for a lot of folks. Um, interesting enough, uh, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, um, rows or scapular retraction. Um, when people lift or carry things, if they do so with a protracted position of their shoulder blades, it's throwing the object anterior to the base of support, creating a flexion moment that may overwhelm the ability to hold a more neutral or less painful position. Um, it's a simple, easy exercise that they can ingrain habitually throughout the day. Um, tends to make people feel better. Actually, there's some good evidence that holding a more upright versus a flex posture mentally and productivity wise. Um, and again, low risk. Going from there, probably to the third thing um, is I would actually teach them how to do squats. And I actually use a different word when I, when I say that. Um, I tell them it's we're working in sit to stance. And I'll give you a funny story about this. Um, there was a area uh, physician that came to have a lunch with us. And I was dealing with one of those very complicated, you know, cases and she was getting great results. And he says, Hey, you know, Kathy, tell me what you're doing with her. I gave him a little rundown. He goes, man, she's doing marvelous. He goes, just be careful. Don't do any squats. I don't worry. We're just working on sit to stands. Oh, okay. That makes sense. It's the same thing. <laughs> you know, we have to get off toilets. We have to get off, you know, couches. So that's something that a majority of our back patients, uh, they need to do that day. And the next day, uh, the extensors of the hip, the extensors of the spine do have to work. Um, so if I were to, you know, whittle it down to three things that I'd try in the first week of somebody with chronic back pain, um, obviously with under, you know, nuances aside, I would say that those would be tops. And is there, are there things that you contraindicate for people, right? Where people who've had maybe recent recent back issues or currently suffering from chronic low back pain? Are there things where you tell people like, hey, let's stay away from this um, because the risk reward ratio just isn't there? No, I, I don't really um, think that. Um, I, there's in individual cases, of course, I'd be able to say that, but um, very rarely do I say, no, just don't do this. This isn't good. Um, very, There are very, very, very few bad exercises. And I try to communicate that there are exercises that are done poorly. There are exercises that are difficult to modulate, to do very easily or do very hard. For example, you can't do an easy sprint, right? Yeah. You know, so, you know, I guess that might be one, you know, scenario, you know, if you have chronic back issues and, um, you know, doing high uh, power, you know, flexion extension mo uh, moments at your spine, um, you know, very few people with chronic back pain in the, you know, first few weeks of treatment are going to tolerate that. So that might be one. Um, anything that I can't modulate very well, we can't make it a little bit easier, a little bit harder. Um, I guess I would probably throw maybe one other exercise on there. Um, hyperextensions. Um, there's, it's, it's a misnomer that there's a hyperextension, you know, you know, machine. 
Um, you don't have to go into hyperextension to do that. So for those who aren't familiar, um, any scenario where you're on that incline apparatus where your um, your hips, the front of your hips are resting on a pad and your spine can uh, bend and then extend or your hips can bend and extend, um, there's very few circumstances where going into hyperextension is justified. We see this in Pilates, lying on your stomach and then you know, the superman or superwoman, you know, where you hyperextend up into here. You can challenge the extensors just as hard if you do that over a ball going from slight flexion to neutral. Getting that extra hyperextension um, has shown to put over 6,000 newtons of stress on the uh, posterior elements of the disc and the, uh, and the facets. So that's a risk reward where um, with a very few exceptions, perhaps if you're a gymnast or a dancer, um, is the risk reward in your favor. Yeah, that's that's one of those topics that I mean I think probably extends past just low back issues is extreme end range extreme end range of motion exercises. Um, you know, I think we've we've heard quite a bit of like, hey, you know, you need to be strong in every position and range of motion, which you know, I think most people would agree with. But what are some of the thoughts on these extreme end range of motion? Um like super, super, super deep squats or um, like hyperextension exercises or things like that. How do you, how do you prepare people to handle loads at extreme ranges of motion? Cause I think that is where some, you know, acute high energy injuries occur. Um, but how do you minimize the risk during training? Yeah. Um, that happens a, a lot with our folks that, really want to push the envelope on, um, on their training. And, and I, I don't judge that as I'm one of them. Um, and I, and I understand the exhilaration just for the sake of doing it, let alone, we sometimes justify it. Oh, it's going to make me healthier. It's going to do it. Well, more often than not, you just want to be able to squat with a lot of crap on your back, you know, yeah. and it's cool and it's fun and I get it and I love it myself. So, um, a lot of people have this illusion that, um, or delusion, I should say, that you can squat really deep and have neutral spine. Um, first, there's a little debate about what do we mean neutral. Second, uh, you're going to go to at least 35 to 60, you know, degrees of flexion when you go, you know, when you try to get your butt all the way down to the ground. Certain body dimensions, certain mobilities are going to make that greater or less. So. I think the degree by which you're flexing your spine um, relative to your hips or your knees um, does minimize or maximize the risk. Obviously, adding load minimizes or mas max, uh, maximizes that, that risk there too. So if somebody tells me like, listen, I'm just squatting so I can jump higher or I can run faster, um, and they have a chronic history of back issues, they're very tall, long torso, uh, maybe don't have 10, 15 years of experience of doing uh, squats. Um, I might either decide that trap bar deadlifts are going to be a better option for them because it minimizes that end range flexion, uh, but it still allows me to produce a huge amount of force on the, the glutes and the and even the extensors are working pretty hard. Um, if somebody's a competitive, you know, uh, Olympic lifter, they got to get down and they got to, you know, get off the ground. Maybe I, I have them consider doing a higher heel uh, shoe so that um, that can minimize um, how much they have to bend at their spine. Um, 
But yeah, there's always going to be a risk reward ratio. Um, we don't have perfect evidence that, um, you know, moderate degrees of flexion under load is going to be a, a massively higher increase. Um, but it does, it does stand to reason we have good enough evidence to show that, you know, if you are on a uh, glute hand machine and you're lying on that, you know, supine and you're throwing a ball all the way back over your head and all the way forward, um, you see that happening, unfortunately, in a lot of CrossFit gyms. Um, no one could have a rational argument as to why that's worth the benefits are anywhere close to the risk. Um, so those would be two common examples that I have to contend with. Good mornings or another one. Um, the margin of error is so slight. Um, you have load at a long lever on across the top of your back. You're bending forward. Um, you, there's a dozen other ways that you can load the extensors uh, all throughout the body with far less risk without broaching those relative full ranges of motion. So um, those would be probably the two most common ones where it's really hard to find a justification for them. Um, kind of going back to an earlier question where we talked about, you know, posterior chain exercises are great for recovery. We don't know how effective they are for prevention. Um, are there things, and you, you mentioned that a lot of it's like what you do outside of the gym is good for prevention. Um, so like I, if I think about my own personal experiences and kind of when I've had back injuries is what are things that you can do to prevent both kind of the acute like back spasm, things like that. Um, you know, the one where you kind of feel the pop and then for like two days, you can't get off the floor um, and kind of the chronic low back pain. What are the, you know, again, it's, I always tell people be a little bit gun shy when somebody has a very easy answer for this, because the reality is, is that if you, if that you're simple. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, at the very least they're missing some critical data. If they can say, well, all you got to do is make sure you foam roll three times a day and that will fix it. Or just don't sit longer than, you know, a half hour um, every day. Um, get up and move a lot. That, those are decent suggestions, but uh, there are plenty of cases where that doesn't fully work. So here's where I'm going with my answer. There's some decent evidence when they look at manual therapy, when they look at other treatments, uh, they've had real-time MRI of the, uh, of the nutrient status of the disc. You know, what was the hydration capacity of the disc? And after doing mobilizations, after doing intermittent traction, the disc hydration actually gets better. And there's some pretty good correlation with that in mitigation of pain and relative acute improvement of function. So extrapolating that and with the inherent dangers of doing so, um, it seems that the disc like intermittent pressure and movement. And there's a lot of parallels to almost every tissue in the body where they tend to thrive better in context of intermittent pressure and movement as opposed to static position. Tissues that don't have a blood supply, they have to get their nutrients through passive diffusion via intermittent loading. So the meniscus and the low back. What are the two most common areas of orthopedic pain? The disc, you know, that spine and the knee. So, 
They don't like prolonged positions. There's even names for this, moviegoers knee. It's when people sit in a movie, attention captivated, not moving for a long period of time to go to get up and their knees aching and sore. Um, back issues, they're almost, when people have those episodes of it going out, it almost always is precipitated by an episode of prolonged sitting or first thing in the morning, they go to bend and twist to lift the cat or do some you know, golfing when they didn't adequately warm up. So in essence, what I would tell people is um, minimizing and avoiding static postures. Uh, that would be probably the biggest uh, generalization that you can make. Um, the second would be when you lift things, if you lift them within your base of support, the torque on your spine is less. So whatever you do, just try to visualize what your base of support is. Is the object you're reaching, pushing, or pulling, or, or carrying within that base? Inherently, the torque will be much less. So in high torque, high force conditions, we have higher episodes of back issues. And after prolonged positions, um, the subsequent movements, the back tends to be less uh, adaptable to. And there's decent, not great, but decent evidence that correlates with that. Um, we have really good construct validity of that. So if you were to make a biomechanical argument, um, you would have a really strong case to be able to show that those tissues uh, thrive under intermittent loading and relatively fail under chronic um, loading. Not the magnitude as much as it is the duration, the chronicity of it. So really it's, we should just all be fidgeters. <laughs> well, here, here's an interesting thing. I like to look at the success stories, the yeah. ones that had back issues and they don't have them anymore. And there's, when you, when that's what you deal with, you know, 40 hours a week and you're under pressure. I mean, it, it's a lot of pressure, to be honest, if you really care about helping someone there, people are miserable and you see what they can't do and how that impacts them. It's not the pain, it's the fear and the anxiety and the worry about how you're going to be a good parent and how you're going to be able to do your job and stuff. It kind of forces you to be super aware beyond what the evidence is showing you. And, and when I look at the ones that serve that, that thrive in spite of having these bad back issues, uh, they are fidgeters. They do move. They, they're constantly shifting. They're, they're getting up and about. The more the exercise, the better they feel. The less they do, the more cranky their back is. And they can almost tell you, like, you know, I got busy over the holidays. I wasn't sleeping really well. Um, you know, we had some a snowstorm. I hadn't hit the gym in a few weeks. And I went out and, you know, I was in a rush. My kid was yelling at me. And I, you know, was, you know, trying to, you know, clear the path. And that's where my back goes out. It's, it's almost that story you know, at least 70% of the time. Yeah. I think about my own experience and I'd say it's pretty similar, right? Is things get worse when I am not sleeping well, not active, high stress levels. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so in terms of, you know, the reasons for that, do you think of, like, I'm just thinking back to like my biomechanics classes in college and a lot of our tissues kind of have, this uh, property like a hysteresis, right? Where they have this elongation stretch property and it takes them some time to return to normal is, do you think just kind of the mechanical nature of our tissues is they just, they need time to recover, but they need to be stimulated. So kind of this on off on off loading kind of allows them to go through their full cycles and come back. Right. So um, there's, there was a big push 
just getting exactly into that. It was a big push um, more in the chiropractic community of doing traction and using these traction tables and traction devices. And, you know, we had been doing intermittent traction in, you know, our physical therapy practice for, for decades. And there was a huge contrast. I kept seeing people that would get it. And then like, it felt great. It felt like it was finally taking pressure off. And then he got off the table and they couldn't walk. And that my theory on that, and, and there's again, not enough evidence to fully substantiate it, but it does make sense based on the biomechanical theory of, of what you're just saying, hysteresis and, and the stress strain and elongation curves, uh, but also throwing in some, some physiology of nutrient exchange. When you are, are doing traction, if you're doing it sufficiently enough to actually cause even a mild separation of the vertebral levels, you would theoretically be pulling also on the ligaments and ligaments can undergo creep. Yeah. And ligaments, you know, are part of the stability mechanism, but neurologically they help like you're in your ankle sense when things have been elongated to a potentially dangerous zone and they send stimulus to your muscles and say, Hey, Hey, this is too much. Come back in. Yeah. And if you do traction for a prolonged period of time, you might be uh, giving the benefit of the lack of, um, no susceptive load on the tissue, but also a negative of that you might be unwittingly causing elongation, or at the very least, you're just shunting or stopping the um, the intermittent load nutrient exchange. Whereas with intermittent traction, you apply it and then release it, apply it and release it. So we've seen a notable difference in the physical therapy world when they used to use mechanical traction versus manual traction. Manual traction is when you're giving the traction and let it away. Not to say that traction is a panacea for back pain. There's only a certain circumstances where it works. But getting to your question and the mechanism, I think that does speak to a plausible biomechanical uh, physiological reasoning that tissue just doesn't respond great um, to prolonged anything, but certainly prolonged stretch, prolonged traction, um, or prolonged static position or static load. Um, and so to kind of put a bow on this topic or this discussion, I guess we've almost gone the whole hour on it. Um, but if you were to kind of give people like a handful of take home points for how we think about posterior chain exercises, um, and how they should fit into kind of their daily life or their programming, what would you kind of tell people as kind of a, a synopsis? One would be uh, the frequency and the amount is based on the evidence is surprisingly fairly low. Um, most of the evidence with effective interventions um, was at a frequency of about two to three times a week. So this doesn't have to be a daily thing. Um, secondly, uh, the, um, the duration. Uh, there was, they didn't have enough studies to show longer durations, but they did have enough studies to show that those who did this for 12 to 16 weeks did better than those who did it for six to eight weeks. So give it time would be my second recommendation. So the amount of time you need to spend probably isn't that much, two to three times a week for, you know, integrating in a total workout program at about 45 minutes uh, to 60 minutes. Uh, that's practical, and that's what most of the studies are showing. Uh, give it, you know, at least a few months. And then finally, um, whatever you choose, based on compliance, uh, studies show that when you do in, in therapy, about three to six exercises is a sweet spot for compliance. 
So whether you're integrating it into your existing program or you're starting complete from scratch, um, have at least, um, you know, three to a half dozen extensor-based exercises in your plan. Um, and then whatever ones you choose, I'd like them to be ones that you could easily grade. So can you make it a little bit harder, or a little bit easier? Um, deadlifts with a bar, inherently, you have 45 pounds in your hand. So uh, maybe you go to some blocks and use, uh, we're doing this with a couple of clients right now, you're using 15 pounds in each hand and dumbbells going down to the blocks. Um, I can inherit, I can infinitely modulate that. Um, so something that you can easily make a little bit harder or a little bit easier. And that's about 95% of exercises that you have to choose from. And if, you know, let's just say people are getting started, what's kind of the, the relative level of effort that their exercise should be like on a scale of one to 10, how hard should it be if they're going to be trying to grade it up and down? I give people um, two basic rules. Um, rule number one, um, do it with proper technique is governed by, you know, the feedback that we're giving. And rule number two, make it as hard as possible to accomplish the time frame or the repetition range. So if it's more of an endurance exercise, I start out for a minute. Try to see if you can do it for a minute. Um, if it's a repetition-based thing, usually, you know, 12, 15. Um, see if you can make it as hard as possible without breaking rule number one. Um, the caveat when I'm dealing with patients as opposed to clients is I had a third rule in the level of discomfort and that people get a little bit like, what do you mean pain or do you mean discomfort? doesn't matter. You know, whatever it is, 10 out of 10, you're going to the ER zero out of 10, you feel fine. <clears throat> if it gets greater than five, um, you need to modulate it. And if that discomfort lasts longer than a day, you need to modulate it. So those are the three basic rules, proper technique, get fatigue within the allotted timeline, which is if it's endurance based, uh, you know, a minute, if it's more repetition based, 12 to 15. And then finally, um, don't let it escalate your symptoms beyond a five out of 10. And if it does, it shouldn't last more than a day. Oh, well, I think that wraps up the posterior chain discussion. I think we kind of walked the full spectrum uh, <laughs> and wrapped it up in a bow. Do you have any like other last minute thoughts or things you want to kind of cover on this topic before we um, close up? Yeah. One quick thing is just always remember that when you hear people like myself, Brad, anyone giving advice about back issues, um, back pain is not back pain there's a lot of different types of back pain. Your back pain might be way different than your grandpa's back pain, might be different than your neighbor's back pain. Um, the biggest challenge to treating back pain is uh, understanding that there's unique presentations of it. So um, just because uh, doing McKenzie exercise has helped for one of your friends and manipulation helped for the other, and then posterior chain exercises help for another, doesn't mean that... Um, that's going to necessarily delineate what's going to work for you. Back pain, there are many different subtypes of it in different presentations. So what we tried to talk about today was chronic back pain, pain that goes between your upper glute area, your waistline, and your rib cage, and it lasts um, without diagnosis for about 12 weeks. Um, so just bear in mind that there's different types of back pain that might not fit to what we talked about today. 
Cool. Well, Mike, as always, you're a fountain of knowledge uh, and I learned a ton. So thanks so much. I think this podcast will probably go out here in about an hour. Um, so people will be, will be able to, to listen to it today. So, well, thanks a ton. And we will see you, gosh, I guess again in a couple of weeks. Yeah. It's always fun talking to Brad and uh, thanks again for having me on. All right. Cheers. All right. See you.